I now have the privilege of turning in God's Word to Joel chapter 1, as we'll be picking up where we left off last time, or really actually reading last week's scripture lesson, overlapping with today. We'll be reading Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, as we begin after our introduction last time to get really into the meat of what Joel has to say to us. So we read now the word of God as he gave to Joel. We'll read Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of it, for it is God's very word. Joel 1, 1 through 12. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. And let us pray God's blessing upon it. Lord, we do indeed pray that you would bless the reading of your word, its exposition now, and its hearing, that each of us might be built up all the more in the knowledge of your word and thereby in the doing of it. Let us not be merely hearers of it, let us be doers of your word, that we might serve you faithfully and proclaim Christ to the generation in which you have placed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw last time as we had an introduction to the book of Joel that it's really hard to pin down exactly when Joel, the son of Pethuel, prophesied. But an educated guess would be in the time before the Assyrians invaded the southern Israelite kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, a little bit before 700 B.C. It's usually dated around 701 B.C. And so this could have come before that and even... It might be that Joel prophesied and stated these things before 
Hezekiah became king around 715 BC and, and uh, instituted reforms and there was public repentance taking place. But we see in today's passage that Joel spoke God's word in a time when a plague of locusts had devastated the land. In light of this disaster, he calls upon people of all ages, all uh, social statuses, all walks of life to mourn. And we'll take today's passage verse by verse to get into what Joel is saying here, and then we'll draw some conclusions about what uh, a nation ought to learn from this, when a nation ought to mourn. And here are some things to be looking for as we make our way through the passage, some lessons that we have in this passage. Number one, learn the lessons of history. Uh, history is not merely an academic study. It's something that is good for us to know. And God wants us to know how he has worked in history. So learn the lessons of history. Secondly, then pass those lessons on to future generations. Third, mourn when it's time to mourn. And fourth, examine yourself and your nation, because we're thinking here particularly about nations, but there are lessons in this that we can apply to ourselves individually. We should be examining ourselves. Examine yourself. And also examine your nation, your culture, and practice repentance. So let's go verse by verse, and we'll see what we have to learn here. Verse 1, we dealt with last time, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Joel is, is speaking forth the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. The true God, the self-existent one, has spoken to Joel, and so we should heed what he has to say. And he begins pronouncing the message that God has, the message God gave him, in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land, has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? The inhabitants of the land and especially their elders are called upon to consider the present circumstances of the kingdom of Judah. And of course we can juxtapose inhabitants of the land with elders and say this might be saying those in government and then everybody else. But the word elder simply means Old one, old person, old man, elders here in the plural, old men or old people. Local government was in the hands of the elders, the older men of the community. But God isn't specifically calling on them necessarily because of their office of authority, but as we see in the context, it's because of their age. You say, hey, you've been around a while, have you seen anything like this? The terms collective, it can mean not just older men, too. It can mean all older people. So he's saying, I think in this context, all of you people who've been around a while, think about this. Have you seen anything like this? He's asking if the old people of the land can recall anything like the current disaster ever having happened in their lifetimes. And he calls on the rest of the people not only to search their own memories, but give ear to what their elders testify. John Calvin writes on this. 
He expressly addresses the old because experience teaches men much. And the old, when they see anything new or unusual, must know that it is not according to the ordinary course of things. So if you see something new or unusual and you've been around a while, you've never seen anything like that before, well, you know, this is not the ordinary course of things. This is something new, at least new in terms of recent history. Calvin says, he who has passed his 50th or 60th year and sees something new happening, which he never thought of, doubtless acknowledges it as the unusual work of God. It's nice to know that according to the great theologian John Calvin, I now qualify as an old man. Um, but what he's saying is that it's, it's one thing for a man who's maybe 20 or 30 to say, I've never seen anything like that before. You know, in all my 25 years, I've never seen anything. That's, that's one thing, and that's, that's significant enough. But it's a lot more noteworthy if a man who's 50 or 60, or as we see people growing older and by God's grace in our time, men who are 70 or 80 or 90 or 100, and they say to us, I've never seen anything like that before. And they're saying it in sound mind. I know we have to make that caveat sometimes. My, my grandfather was suffering from some dementia. And he had, I remember a time when he, he loved onion rings. Always did. So we took him out to a restaurant and we ordered onion rings for him. And he said, what is that? I've never had anything like that before. Well, that wasn't his the fact that it was a new experience, that was just the fact that he was suffering from dementia. But if we hear somebody of sound mind who's a lot older than us saying, I've never seen anything like that before, that's something that we ought to take note of. And notice something more. God does not just ask the elders of Judah if they can personally remember anything like this invasion of locusts in their lifetime. But they and the other inhabitants of the land are told to reflect on whether this has ever happened in the entire history of the people of Israel. Or even in, he says, or even in the days of your fathers. Did this happen in the days of your ancestors? In fact, the last time the Israelites had witnessed something this devastating would not have been in their own history in the land. It would have been what we sang about in Psalm 105 earlier when they witnessed a plague of locusts like this in Egypt as God's judgment on that land. There is an exhortation in this to be aware of history, to learn its lessons. God does not expect us to be ignorant of history. It's not helpful for us to be ignorant of history. Now, you don't all have to be as as nerdy about history as I am, but we do need to be aware of history. In verse 3 we read, Tell your children then also about it. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So not only are we to learn history, it should not stop with us. We should pass the lessons of history on to future generations. Specifically, they are to tell us what is happening in their time. Verse 4, what the chewing locust left. So this is, they're witnessing something difficult. I think I would liken this to 
when I was growing up hearing men of my grandfather's generation talk about what it was like to grow up in the Great Depression, what it was like to go through World War II, because those are things the likes of which we have not yet seen, though we might stress the word yet in our lifetime, although Harold here can remember some of these things. But most of us haven't lived through these things. And here's what they're, they're to pass this knowledge on. So you search history, you pass the lessons of history on to other generations, and here's a lesson from your time that you should pass on, God's saying. In verse 4, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Now, Bible scholars struggle with this. They debate these things. They think these might be different terms for locusts. Well, they are different terms for locusts, but uh, chewing locusts, swarming locusts, crawling locusts, consuming locusts. Uh, some think these might refer to different stages of development for these types of locusts. Or these could refer to differing behaviors depending on number and, and environment. Because locusts behave differently depending on how many of them there are and what the environment is like. Or they could actually be even different species or subspecies of locusts. Now, if you're like me, you grew up hearing people refer to cicadas as locusts. That's what we tend to call locusts here in North America. But the cicadas that we have here in North America are not actually locusts, the way that we're talking about locusts here from Scripture. Uh, locusts are actually species of grasshoppers. They're a group of species of grasshoppers. Not all grasshoppers are locusts but all locusts are grasshoppers, basically is the way this works. I remember reading in a book once about a rumor uh, that farmers were having trouble with grasshoppers, and, and somebody realized, ah, that's, that's locusts. And uh, they were trying not to let that word spread too fast, and he was able to corner the market on certain... Uh, this was an investor was able to corner the market. This was fiction. Uh, but because uh, people were talking about grasshoppers, and they were actually dealing with locusts. And that's, that is true, that locusts are grasshoppers. When certain environmental factors are right, or really from our perspective wrong, they're the way we don't want them to be, locusts can breed and survive in huge numbers. And they can swarm then. And when they begin to swarm, they start to devour every plant that they come across in short order. In our passage, God is pointing out the recent experience of the people of Judah. You've just seen things like this, and it's devastating. What one species or one stage of development of locusts did not eat, the next one did. So that after a succession of four waves of locusts, nothing much is left. As we'll see next week, Lord willing, drought also contributed to this. So it's not as if it's just the locusts that's the problem, but God has withheld the rains from the land. And so drought and possibly wildfires as well are causing all kinds of destruction, and the locusts have ate up most of the produce of the land. As a result of these conditions, there are no grapes with which to make wine. The vines from which the, the grapes have been, or would come rather, have been devastated. Look at verse 5 through 7. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. 
And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine. So in other words, you might have some in store, but once it's gone, it's gone, because we're not making any vintage from this year. (laughs) Because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Now, here's where we get into some more debates about what the Scripture is actually saying here. Some have thought that verse 6 is literally talking about an invading nation. It says uh, there's a nation that's come up. The Hebrew word there is goy. It's a term for a foreign nation, a Gentile nation. Certainly in chapter 2, we're going to see the prediction of a coming military invasion by another people. And as I said, I think that the best educated guess there would be that it's the Assyrians. But here we see this invasion spoken of in the past tense. Uh, Those who think it's about uh, an invading human army, like Matthew Henry, think that the language about locusts is actually figurative, and this is talking about a, a human invasion. The invaders are like locusts to the mind of some Bible commentators. John Calvin writes of each as literal, saying they're literal locusts, and now in this verse he's talking about an invading foreign power. Um, I agree that this passage speaks of literal locusts, uh, but I don't think that we uh, need to think yet of a literal invading nation until we get to chapter 2. I think this is poetic language, and but I could be wrong, but I, but I would... My best guess would be that this is poetic language and the army being spoken of here is really the locusts themselves. The universality of what the locusts have devoured along with the other uh, figurative language about lion's teeth and so on leads me uh, to believe that verse 6 is speaking poetically still of the locusts themselves. All the rest of this passage in the next, in other words, all of chapter 1, is really concerned with natural disaster. The locusts, I would argue, were like an invading army, bringing destruction everywhere they went. Another thing worthy of note is what we see in verse 7. And notice the use by God of the possessive pronoun. God speaks of my vine and my fig tree. Notice also that the vine and the fig tree is singular in each case. So not only have the locusts laid waste the actual several vines and fig trees of the land, but they have brought God's nation to a horrific point. And the reason I say that is we look at places like Psalm 80, and there is a vine. It's God's vine, and it's an image of Israel. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it, You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She set out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. And then Psalm 80, verse 14. Return, we beseech you, O God God of hosts. Look down 
from heaven and see and visit this vine. So there the vine is the people of Israel. And they're calling Israel's shepherd in that song to come and visit your vine. In Hosea 9 verse 10, the fig tree is also a figure of God's people. I have found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, and I saw your fathers as the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. So we see there the vine and the fig tree not only are representative of all of the vines and fig trees of the land, but because God calls it my vine and my fig tree, we see that this represents Israel. It represents the people. And they can also, vines and fig trees can also in Scripture represent earthly prosperity. Micah 4 verse 4. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In Zechariah 3 verse 10. In that day, said the Lord of hosts, or says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So it's not just the food source of the land, for food sources, I should say in plural, of the land that have been laid waste. It's God's people. It's their very prosperity. The people have been devastated and they're their means of comfort in the world has been taken away from them. Blessings that had come from the Lord, he's withdrawn from them. Now the appropriate and normal response to such conditions is to mourn. Even as the drunkards and those who drink wine should wail as the means of their drinking is gone, we see that in verse 5. We read in verses 8 and 9 that the people in general, and especially uh, their priests, should mourn. Verse 8, Lament like a young virgin girded in sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The people should be as mournful as a young woman whose husband has died, perhaps even before the marriage was completed. Verse 9, the, the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. Well, that makes sense. If all the produce of the land is gone, then people can't, don't have anything to bring to tithe at the temple. And so Joel says, the priests mourn who minister to the Lord. People of all ages and walks of life must mourn because of this economic disaster. Verse 10, the field is wasted the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Now that's significant that those th three things would be placed together. Because the grain, wine, and olive oil weren't just random products of agriculture. They were commodities for trade. In fact, they were often used as currency in that day. People were not usually paid in coins in Old Testament times. They were paid in grain, wine, and oil. That's how Solomon paid the workers who built his temple, built the temple of the Lord, I should say, that he was constructing in grain, wine, and oil. So obviously, farmers and vine dressers, especially more in these circumstances, their means of income is gone. They've lost their means of support in this world. 
That's a dreadful thing. This is why, just to say as a tangent here, uh, John Calvin talks about gossip and slander as being tantamount to murder because if you slander someone, you can take away their means of livelihood in the world. This is a grave thing. And here God, in his chastising of his people, has taken people's means of support for themselves away. Probably because they have forgotten that God is their ultimate means of support. He's showing them not to trust these things. Verses 11 and 12, Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered, Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. We'll see in chapter 2 especially that this mourning is not supposed to be self-pity. It isn't just, oh, woe is me, everything bad happens to me. right? But it's supposed to be a correction. It's supposed to lead to repentance. As he'll say in the next chapter, turn to me with all your heart. That should be the ultimate response. Well, you and I live in a time of what could be arguably called an economic disaster. We're not to Great Depression proportions yet. We're not anywhere close to what Judah was suffering at this time. Most of us aren't really feeling that our daily comforts are being taken away yet. We don't know how long that'll last. It could be worse, and it may get worse. We have much to rejoice about still. But it's not a time to rejoice in the abundance and affordability of our groceries. <laughs> right? Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you can, you can trace a lot of this economic difficulty to perhaps some foolish policies that some in government have chosen to put in place, that this is not God's means of judging us. Proverbs 28 says, because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes, and knowledge, right, excuse me, got to read this correctly, and knowledge, right, will be, by knowledge, right will be prolonged. In Proverbs 28, 16, a ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. One thing those verses are saying is that the wicked nation often gets a foolish leader. Like Judah in Joel's day, we are in a time of economic woe, of possibly a looming and increasing threat of war. These are not reasons to rejoice. These are reasons to mourn. Not to despair, not to be pessimistic, but to be legitimately and sincerely grieved at things that are going on in our culture. And this grief should drive us to reflect on why God might be removing certain blessings from us that we've enjoyed in the past. So here are some exhortations for us. One, as we saw in this passage, learn the lessons of history. Recent history, your elders can remember so that in our own time we're not repeating the mistakes of the past, that 
So older folks, not just those who hold church office, but look to older people and see what they can remember. More distant history from those who chronicled it. There's a reason that leftists and other totalitarians want to rewrite history or cut a people off from their heritage. Such people are easier to control. They're easier to manipulate, especially into sinful and destructive directions because they don't know how this was done before. You know, the people who think, well, socialism was ne never worked in the past because I wasn't the one in charge. Right? <laughs> no, it's always going to fail. Satan relishes an ignorant people who know little or nothing of their history. Learn the lessons of history, and then don't let it stop with you. It's not going to help much if, if you learn the lessons of history, but then nobody else learns it. Pass those lessons on to future generations. And third, mourn when it's time to mourn. Doesn't mean, again, that you can't rejoice alongside of it. There's much to rejoice about in our own circumstances right now. But when God brings disasters and difficulties on your nation, mourn that. Lament it. Reflect on why he might be doing such a thing. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And then fourth, examine yourself and your nation and practice repentance where it is needed. A need for particular repentance is not the only possible reason that the Lord might bring disaster on a nation. And it's frequently the reason, though. Your personal sufferings might be because of your sins, or they might be because God is teaching you to trust Him more, uh, to cling to Him, not to love this world so much. All such things help prepare you for heaven. But, in, uh, but institutions of this world, uh, nations and their governments, they're not going to last into the next world. So they're often going to get their just desserts, as it were, in the here and now. Nations need to repent of national sins. So examine your nation. Repent. You're a part of the nation. It's appropriate, even if you didn't particularly participate in that sin, it's appropriate for you to repent of it, to, to be confessing it before God. And call others to repent and turn from our national sins. Whereas we're going to see as we make our way through Joel, God doesn't simply say, repent of your sins and I'll still punish you for them. No, return to Him and there are blessings in that. And we want to see our nation return to Christ. But let's pray. Lord, we know that we have often failed to learn the lessons of history and to pass those lessons on to others. We mourn our current circumstances and we recognize our complicity in our national sins, especially in great sins like the mass murder of so many unborn children. There are many other ways in which our nation has turned from you we ask that you would forgive us and that you would pour out your spirit of blessing, not simply that we might have comforts in this life, 
but rather that we might be a nation that is a repentant nation and eventually a Christian nation. That we might indeed be a land that is like a beacon to others, that is like a lamp on a lampstand and a shining city on a hill, that we might proclaim Christ to the nations. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.